If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you take them please and turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus, the third chapter of the book of Exodus, and also the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 56 through 59. As you've already been told, today is the beginning of a new series of messages dealing with the seven I am sayings of our Lord. Uh, there are, of course, many other I am's of our Lord, but these are seven that John in his gospel records for us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And today's message is an introduction to the entire series, and it is called simply the great I am. So let's begin with Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. This, of course, is the account of Moses uh, seeing the burning bush and going to it and having a personal encounter with the living God, the great I Am. Verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Parasite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then going over to the gospel of John in the sixth chapter, eighth chapter of the gospel of John, uh, Jesus is in conversation with the Jewish leaders. And it is at this point that he confesses uh, his deity, that he is indeed God, that he is the son of God. 
Beginning with verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you, because I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. When Helen Keller uh, was 19 months old, she contracted an illness that left her blind and deaf. It was not until she was 10 years old that she began to have meaningful communication with her family members and others who were around her. It occurred when her gifted teacher, Anne Sutherland, taught her to say water by spelling it out in sign language on the palm of her hand. From that pivotal experience, Helen Keller entered the wonderful world of words and names, and it transformed her life. When Helen was accustomed uh, to this new system of communication with other people, her parents made arrangements with the eminent pastor Phillips Brooks in Boston. And it was there one day during a lesson, Helen said these remarkable words to Brother Brooks. I knew about God before you told me, only I did not know his name. I did not know his name. If Moses is to go down to Egypt and to deliver the people of Israel out of the bondage that they were in, he needed to know the Lord's name because the first question they were going to ask was, by what authority are you doing this? Whose name are you using? Because you see, they knew about the Lord. I mean, they had been taught uh, all the way, all in the book of Genesis, you are introduced to the Lord. They'd been in captivity and slavery for 400 years. They had had uh, the worship of pagan gods all around them. And so uh, it's been 40 years since they've seen Moses and many of them did not know him. By what authority are you doing this? What right do you have to tell us what to do? What right do you have to tell Pharaoh what he has to do? In whose name are you doing this? And so the Lord said to him, say to them, I am who I am. I am has sent you. And so centuries later, Jesus of Christ, of course, claimed that he was the I am and that he said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced in it. In what way did Abraham see the day of Jesus? Did God put him in a time machine and transport him into the future so that he could see when Jesus was born and when Jesus would be crucified and when Jesus would be resurrected from the dead? No, but I do believe that the Lord gave to Abraham perception that he could see from experiences that happened in his own life that they all pointed to the coming Messiah. Take, for example, the miraculous birth and conception of Isaac. Now, it was through natural means, of course. Our Lord's conception in the Virgin Mary was supernatural. But at the same time, Sarah was way past the age where she could conceive a child and be born. 
And so that had to be a miracle. It was a miracle. It was miraculous that she was able to conceive a child by Abraham. And I think that perhaps that would be a picture of what was going to happen with the Messiah. And then, of course, you have the encounter when, uh, when uh, Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain uh, and offered him as a sacrifice. And just as he was about to plunge the knife into his body, there was a noise behind him. And he turned and saw a ram caught in the thicket and it became a substitute for his son. That surely was an Old Testament picture of the coming substitute of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the world. And then there was their priestly encounter with Melchizedek. Didn't know where he came from or, or where he went after he left, but he recognized him as a priest and, and, and gave offerings unto him. Or later in the Old Testament book of, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we are told that Melchizedek was a, a, a symbol or a, a prototype of, of, of Jesus who would be our ultimate high priest and to whom we would pay homage and worship and tithe. And then of course there was the, uh, the, the picture uh, of the marriage of Isaac to Rebekah, which no doubt spoke to him about the coming marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, of, of the Lamb of God with, with his church, the bride. So yes, there were ways in which Abraham saw what Jesus was going to be like, and he rejoiced in that. And of course, that, that rubbed the people wrong in, in Jesus' day. They didn't like to admit that they were wrong. And so uh, Moses said, I am has sent me. Now, today uh, we're going to look at uh, four things, four primary, and this is not an exhaustive uh, description of Jesus or God is the great I am. Uh, the word I am, and I have this in your bulletin, in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew language um, uh, uses consonants rather than vowels. If you had a, a Hebrew Bible, you would not read it like we read our Bibles and our books. We read, when we read, we open our books and we turn from right to left, and then we read from left to right. In the Hebrew language, it's just the opposite. You start at what we would call the back of the book, and you would turn from right to left. And then when you would read the Hebrew language, you wouldn't read it from left to right. You would read it from right to left. It's just backwards. And the Hebrew language in the Bible is all written in consonants. And so that's why I've put the letters there for you on your, on your bulletin, Y-H-W-H. And uh, you take the word Adonai and the vowels of the word Adonai and put them in there because Adonai means Lord. And you pronounce the word Yahweh, Yahweh. Can you say that with me? Yahweh. 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 So you know a little bit of Hebrew this morning. Yahweh. And the word Yahweh it translated in the Bible is the word Jehovah. Or it could be translated Lord. And so look at it. We're in Exodus chapter 3. Look at verse 14. He says, say to them, I am who I am. I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. Now look at verse 15. God therefore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel. What will I say to them? When they say to me, by what authority are you doing this? Who sent you? What will I say to them? And God said to Moses, this is what you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, has sent me. The God of the fathers of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has sent me to you. Notice down in verse 16, go and gather the, Is the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord has sent me. 
Look at verse 18. Then they will pay homage to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, I am who I am, has sent me to you. So whenever you come across the word Lord in the English Bible, and it's spelled with capital letters, L-O-R-D, then it is the word Jehovah or the great I am. So with that in mind then, we will look at these four major ideas as to what the word I am means. First of all, the word or name I am means that God is eternal in his existence. Look at verse 15, Exodus 3, 15. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name for how long? Forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. So in making this comment to Moses, the Lord was admitting, I am eternal. I have always existed. I've not just come upon the scene suddenly. I have always been I am and I always will be. Notice he says, I am the father of Moses, of uh, uh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now we consider Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as all being dead. But the Bible says of the Lord that he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive. They still are alive. They are in the presence of the Lord. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. He has always existed. He exists now and he always will exist. And Jesus is eternal in his existence. Notice in the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler of Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So the prophet Micah talk about the eternity, the eternal existence of God and the eternal existence of Jesus Christ. When you come to the New Testament, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. The word, word, is spelled with a capital W. Anytime you find the word, word, spelled with a capital W in the New Testament, it is a reference to Jesus. So he's talking about the Lord Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Only it's using the word, word. And then he says in, chapter, in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. So Jesus is eternal. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus said to John on the island of Patmos, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It would be like our saying, I am the A and the Z of the Lord. I am the Alpha and Omega who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So the name I am speaks of the eternal existence of God and the eternal existence of Jesus. Now, if Jesus is eternal, then the life that he gives to you and to me when we trust him as our Lord and Savior likewise is eternal. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have what? Everlasting life, eternal life. You will live forever. You have not always existed, but you were conceived in your mother's womb. You were born when you were old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, to confess that you were a sinner and that Jesus Christ is God's son and you accepted him through the repentance of your sins to be your Lord and your savior. You received eternal life. Eternal life does not begin when you die or buried into the ground. Eternal life for you began when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And because he is the resurrection and the life, you will live forever. God is eternal. He has always existed. He is alive and exists today and he always will exist. He is the great I am. Now notice the second thing. Not only does I am mean that God is eternal in his existence, but it means that God is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. Now, I don't want to offend anybody when I say this, but sometimes people meaning well, when a loved one dies, maybe a child, maybe a, a spouse or some relative, and they'll say, oh, God must have needed him or her in his garden of flowers up in heaven. And I know that they mean well when they say that, but the only thing wrong with it is it's not right. God does not need anything. You need to understand that. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. God is self-sufficient. He has everything that he would ever need or want. And so he needs nothing. Now, of course, the, the difference is love. God made you. God created you, not because he needed you, not because he was lonely and needed somebody to have fellowship with, but God made you and created you because he loves you, because he wanted to do that. Now, let me give you some verses of scriptures about God's, and I've written them out for you on your bulletin so that you can look at them up later. Our time won't allow us to spend a lot of moments on it, but look, Exodus 19, 5. Exodus 19.5 says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. All the earth. Everything around us, the trees, the birds, the plants, the dirt, the air, the rain, whatever it is, the moon, the stars, the galaxies throughout the whole entire universe, everything belongs to God. He made it, he created it, and it's his. He owns it. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belongs heaven and the highest heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Job chapter 41, verse 11. Who has given to me that I should repay him? God isn't obligated to anybody. God doesn't owe anything to anybody. What could you give to God that he doesn't already own? Who has given to me that that I should repay him? Whatever is under the heavens is mine, says the Lord. And I love this one. Psalm chapter 50, verses 10 through 12. For every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. And then he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, 
for the world is mine and all that it contains. So God said, if I was starving to death, I wouldn't tell you because I own it all. And therefore, Jesus said, or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, for the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. So God is self-sufficient. And because he is, Jesus is self-sufficient. And Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So everything that you need, God has the supply for it. God has the answer for it. Whatever trouble you're having, whatever problem you've got, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're experiencing in life, wherever there's a vacancy, a vacuum, there's a need, God's grace is sufficient and God will be able to meet every need you have and supply every need that you have as well. God is self-sufficient. Notice a third thing. The words I am means that God is ultimate in his authority. Moses asked, by what authority do I have to say to them that I've come to deliver you? And what authority do I have to say to Pharaoh, let my people go? And so the Lord is saying, I have ultimate authority in everything. Notice in Exodus 3, still in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So it is by, Moses didn't go out and do this on his own authority. He was doing it in the name of and by the authority of Almighty God himself, the great I am. Uh, you may recall, I've explained to you before, sometimes when I was able to baptize individuals, especially for children, I'd take them up into the baptistry and show them the baptistry and then walk them through how I was going to baptize them. And I would say at one point in time, I'd raise my hand and I would say to them, um, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then I'd use the illustration by saying that I'm baptizing you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm saying to you that I'm not doing this because I want to or I say you have to. It's not by my authority. It's not even by the authority of the church. It's the authority of God. I do it not in the name of First Baptist Church, not in the name of Alan Reed, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. If a policeman, and I use this as an illustration, is out in the community and he comes upon somebody who is committing a crime, he might say to them, stop in the name of the law. Well, what is he meaning? Well, that policeman is not out there on his own. He's not just going around bossing everybody and telling them what they need to do or what they can't do. He has been authorized by the law of our land to go out there and say, in the name of the law, I say to you, stop doing this crime or whatever. So when I baptize you, it's not in my authority or the name of the church authority, but in the name of the authority of the Lord, who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he goes to Moses, uh, he goes to, to Pharaoh, he goes to the elders of the people of Israel, and he says, I come to you in the name and the authority of the Lord God Almighty, the great I am. Now, in order to do this, you need some signs because the Bible says that the Jews are always looking for signs. 
So the authority of the Lord God Almighty, the great I Am, was seen in various ways. For the people of Israel down in the bondage of Egypt, it was by the ten plagues. Now God, having created everything and owns everything, can use anything and everything to accomplish his will. And so, ten plagues. The first plague was turning water into blood. The second one, the multiplication of all the frogs. Froggy went a courting and he did ride. Amen, amen. And there were just frogs everywhere. Open up the oven door and there were frogs. Open up the refrigerator door, there was frogs. Pull back the sheets on your bed, it was covered up with frogs. They couldn't go anywhere without stepping on a frog or a toad or something. Frogs everywhere. God commanded the frogs to come forth. And then there was the lice. And then there were flies. And the plague upon the cattle, there were boils that came upon their bodies. And there was the hail that fell down from the heavens. There was the locusts that came from the, from the far corners of the earth, just covered all the land of Egypt. And then there was darkness. But remember, the darkness only covered the people of Egypt. The people, the Israelites were still in daylight. It was just as though God drew a line and said, this part is going to be filled with darkness. This part over here is going to be with light. God did that. He used nature to do so. And then there was the death angel that came. And the Lord gave instructions that they were to take the blood of a lamb and smear it across the door and on the sides and on the bottom. And when the death angel came, he saw that blood. He wouldn't enter that house and the firstborn would not die. He would pass over that house and go to the next one. If he came to a house that didn't have the blood on it, then the firstborn in that house would die. God used all of nature to perform these 10 plagues upon the land of Egypt by his authority. And then there was the parting of the Red Sea. Again, it was God that parted that sea. This wasn't just a little tributary. It wasn't a little stream. This was the Red Sea. And God split it down the middle and dried up the land instantaneously as Moses lifted up that, st that staff and that rod. God split it wide open and the people of Israel went right across. And when they got on the other side and the Pharaoh's uh, uh, chariots and his uh, sh uh, shoulders, soldiers, <laughs> getting mixed up with shoulders and soldiers here, uh, <clears throat> went across, the, the Lord just said, okay, drown them all, drown them all. A miracle. By the authority and power of Almighty God, there was Joshua when he is fighting the Amorites and the sun stood still. God just stopped the sun in its track. Didn't cause anything to go you know, haywire and berserk in all of nature. God just stopped the sun and, and they were able to win a victory when Elijah was out there in the wilderness. God commanded a raven to come and to feed him. God is powerful. He owns everything. And when he says something is to be done, all of nature responds. When Jesus was on the face of the earth, likewise nature responded to him. You remember when uh, Peter was in the boat fishing and, and hadn't caught anything all night. And then the Lord got in the boat and told him to move out into the deep and cast his net down. And Peter said, he was an experienced fisherman. And he said, Lord, we've been out here all night, hadn't caught a thing. He said, put your net down in the water. And I think God just said to those fish, go over and jump in that net. And he just filled that net up so heavy, Peter couldn't pull it in the boat by himself. He had to call for help to get the fish in the boat. And then you remember uh, that when uh, the Lord was in the boat and they were on the Sea of Galilee and, 
And the storm came up and they were frightened. They thought they were getting more water in the boat than was in the Sea of Galilee. And the Lord was laying over there asleep and, and they woke him up and said, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? We're going to drown here if you don't do something. And the Lord stood up and said to the wind and the waves, hush. The word literally means to put a muzzle, just like you'd put a muzzle on a mad dog to keep him from biting you. The Lord just put a, a, a mask on, on the wind and said, stop, cease. And all of a sudden the wind just stopped blowing. The waves quit you know, moving. And they looked around at one another and said, even the wind and the waves obey him. So Jesus has the authority to do whatever he pleases. And in the Great Commission, the last words of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. I stand here today before you as your pastor and as a minister of the gospel and an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is not of my own choosing. God placed his hands on my life when I was a 17-year-old boy and called me to be a minister and a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not here on my own authority. What I say to you, I trust has been and always will be by the authority of God Almighty who has commissioned me to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are to obey him because he and he alone has the uh, ultimate authority of what he can say he can do with you and, and not do with you and take your life or let you live or have this disease or this tragedy in your life. God has a will and a purpose and his sovereign will and authority. He doesn't have to ask your permission to do anything. He's sovereign. And then the fourth thing. I am means that God is unchangeable. That God is unchangeable. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change. God doesn't change. He's not one thing yesterday and another thing today and be another thing tomorrow. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, there are a lot of things about God that doesn't change. I'm going to give you four this morning in the few moments that we have left. So let me quickly give these things to you. Here are four things about God that never changes. God is holy. He is holy. He always has been. He still is. And he always will be. Look, if you would, in the third chapter of Exodus at verses 4 and 5. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And the Lord said, do not come near, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. You see, God is holy, and wherever God is, wherever he is, that place is holy, it's holy. Now, the word holy can also be translated different, different. Could also be translated unique. You remember Isaiah caught a glimpse of the holiness of God as recorded in the sixth chapter of his prophecy. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up sitting on his throne. And you remember Isaiah describes that as a place filled with the cherubim. Cherubim or angels. 
Evidently, there are ranks in the order of the angels, cherubim, seraphims, and so forth. Lucifer, it's believed, was the chief of all the angels. But there was Gabriel and Michael and other angels, so that there were cherubims there. And they were flying around. They were described as having six wings, two uh, on, on their arms and two on their legs. They, they were able to fly around. But as they flew around, and as they took the hot coals off the altar and applied them to the lips of, of, of uh, Isaiah, they were going about saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They could have just as easily said, unique, unique, unique is the Lord God. Different, different, different is the Lord God. Because that's what the word holy means. It means that God is unique. That there are not many gods. There's only one. He is the one only of a kind. God, Jesus Christ, is the unique, different, only one son of God that there is. Now, you and I are called the children of God. Sometimes we're called the sons of God. But we are the sons and children of God in a way different than Jesus is. We are not God. We never will be God. But Jesus is and was and always shall be. He was the holy, unique, one of a kind, only begotten son of almighty God. And God will never change in his holiness. Pilate, you may remember, after having examined Jesus, when he went before the people and said, to whom will you have me release, you or Barabbas? They said, give us Barabbas. And he said, why? What's wrong with Jesus? I've examined him and I have found no fault in him. You may remember that Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus and she sent word to her husband, Pilate, warning him, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Even the soldier who was in charge of the crucifixion after Jesus bowed his head and gave up the ghost said, truly this was the son of God. Jesus asked on one occasion, by what sin have I committed that you punish me? The Bible tells us in the words of Peter that he committed no sin, neither was there any guile or deceit found in his mouth. Like his heavenly father, Jesus is holy. And God, when he transforms you into a new creation and you become a child of God, takes the holiness and righteousness of his son and transplants it into your heart. And you become a whole new creation. You're different from the rest of this world. Be ye holy, even as I am holy, God says. So God never changes in who he is. And he is holy. Notice something else about the Lord that never changes, which just thrills my heart. And it is this, that God is aware of your suffering. He is aware of your suffering. He always has been aware of people's suffering. He still is aware of it, and he always will be aware of it. Now you say, well, pastor, where in the world do you get all of this? Well, go to Exodus chapter 3. And look at verse 7. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. Look at verse 9. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Look at verse 16. 
Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So the Lord is saying to Moses, I know what's going on. I know for the last 400 years, they've been in bondage, they've been slaves, they've been treated, ill-treated, they've been punished, they've, they've suffered affliction, they've been crying out to me. I know all about it, he says. And now, according to God's timetable and schedule, not theirs, not ours, not yours, but whenever God says it's time, he calls out those to deliver and he says, you go down there, I'm aware of what's going, now it's time to deliver them. You know, the Bible tells us that when Jesus looked upon the city of Jerusalem, he wept because he saw that they were as sheep scattered, having no shepherd. Isaiah prophesied and said that Jesus would be a man of grief, one who would be acquainted with sorrow, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So Jesus knows what's going on in your life. He always has been since the day you were conceived. He knows what's going on in your life today. He'll always know what's going on in your life. He knows how you suffer. He knows what you're being oppressed for. You know who's giving you the trouble. God knows everything there is to know about you. And he says, as he did to Moses about the people of Israel, I am concerned about them. Don't you ever doubt God's sympathy, God's empathy, God's concern and love for you. He is aware of what is going on in your life. And that has never changed. Not only is God holy and not only is he aware of your suffering, the third thing is that God's always available. God's always available, always has been, is, and always will be available to you. And look, if you would please, at Exodus 3, verse 8, verse 12. Exodus 3, 8 says, So I have come down to deliver them. <laughs> I'm here to deliver them. I'm available to them. I'm going to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. Look at verse 12. And he said to Moses, certainly I will be with you. Oh, Moses was offering all kinds of excuses. I'm an illiterate, I don't speak well. And that was a lie. You go back and read the beginning verses about the Moses. Moses grew up and was educated. He was the grandson of Pharaoh. Uh, in name only, of course, you understand. But, but he grew up, he, he probably would have been groomed to be the future Pharaoh of Egypt. And he had all of the finest teachers available to him. He learned how to speak Egyptian language as well as the Hebrew language. He was no dummy. And, and he, he, he was able to speak. He was knowledgeable. He was educated and, he, and, he, and, he, and yet he said to God, I'm a nobody. I can't do this, Lord. I can't speak. I, it, I get afraid when I stand up in front of people and I stutter and stammer. God said, surely, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'm always available to you. I think God says the same thing to you and to me. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never desert you. I'll never forsake you. I will always be available to you. You know when you can call upon God to talk to him about what's going on in your life any time you choose to. You'll never get a busy signal from God when you call upon him. God is always available to you anytime, any day about any need that you have. And that has never changed and never will change about God. He himself has said, I will never, no, never, no, never desert you nor forsake you. 
And then finally, God is holy and aware of our suffering and is always available. And God is all-powerful always and forever. When Moses began offering all kinds of excuses, God gave him three personal signs to use to verify that he was there under the authorization of God himself. These are found in the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus. And verse 1 through 9, there were three signs that God gave to him to talk about the power and the authority under which he would lead them out. The first one had to do with his staff. He said in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 4, what's that in your hand? He says, it's a rod or a staff. He said, throw it down on the ground. And when he threw it down on the ground, the Bible says God turned it into a serpent. And it says that Moses fled. (laughs) Smart man, wasn't he? (laughs) What kind of serpent was it? Evidently a poisonous one, probably a a, a cobra. Wasn't the cobra one of the, the, the... Serpents that were used in in Egypt. They had a cobra figure on the crown of Pharaoh and the queen. Could have been a cobra. Man, I'd have run too. Could have been a rubber snake. I'd have run. (laughs) He was a smart man. He fled. Got away from it. But then God said, reach down and take it by the tail. Don't take it by the head. You take it by the tail. When he took it by the tail, it turned back into a staff. And then he said... uh, he said, uh, take, take your hand, put your hand and put it, put it in the bosom of, of your robe, put it there. And when he pulled it out, it become leprous like snow. And then he said, put your hand back into your bosom of your robe. And when he did, he brought it back out and the, the leprosy had disappeared. And he says, if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they'll believe the witness of the last sign. And then, of course, the third sign was the turning of the water of the Nile River into blood. These were the signs initially that Moses was to use to convince the people of Egypt or the, of Israel that indeed the great I am had sent them. You know, as Paul says and the scripture says that the, um, that the people of, uh, of Israel uh, would not believe without some verification. And, and John Bless his heart, filled with the Holy Spirit and anointed by God to record for us the gospel that bears his name. Said this in the 20th chapter of his gospel, verse 30 and 31. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and be living and believing that you may have life in his name. So John was saying, the reason why I wrote my gospel is so that believing it, seeing it, reading it for yourself, you'll come to know and trust and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Oh, listen, folks, in closing, let me just remind you of these things and I'll be through. God loves you. He loves you as though you were the only person in all the world. There's nothing that you could ever do that would cause God to love you any less than he already does. There's nothing that you could ever do that would cause him to love you any more than he already does. I'm saying to you that God has drawn you with his everlasting love. He always has loved you. He loves you now. He always will love you no matter who you are, no matter what you may have done. God wants to know you. 
He makes himself available to you, and he's made himself available to you in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can know him if you don't already do so. You can know him personally. You can enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're willing to repent of your sins, if you're willing to say no to yourself and yes to Jesus and embrace him as your Lord and as your Savior, he will enter into your life and will be with you forever. He has the authority to forgive you of your sins. He can and he will give you eternal life. His grace is sufficient for all of your needs no matter what it is. Moses believed God. God provided all that Moses needed to do his will. Moses surrendered himself to God and God used Moses. Moses in a mighty way and he will do the same for you for he is the great I am let's bow together please Father God we willingly gladly humbly bow before you even now and confess that you are the great I am you are the God of the living and not of the dead you are the God who is the father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ he is your only begotten Son, and we believe that with all of our soul, all of our mind, and with all of our hearts. We thank you for the privilege of proclaiming this good, great, glad news to the whole wide world. And we pray today that as we come to this time of invitation, Holy Spirit of God, that you'll speak to the hearts of your dear people and whoever needs to come forward and make public their profession of faith in Christ, that they would do so. Or perhaps there are others here today who need a church home or have some other decision that they need someone to pray with them about it. We trust that you'll bless us all as we seek to surrender to you and to serve you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Andre is going to lead us in our hymn of invitation, and you come if God is leading you.